Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Rule of Rest. I sometimes do some study in a certain coffee shop. See, I like the atmosphere. I like the white noise, the dull roar of people either talking or others like myself with computers open, working hard, doing whatever that they're doing. But I noticed a for sale sign in the coffee shop, and I spoke briefly to the owner, and he told me he needed to get out of the business. He said that for the last many years, he had worked seven days a week. In fact, he never rested. Well, I expressed concern. I told him, look, God made us for one day of rest. And he said, I just don't know about that, but I know I just want to get out of this business. And I prayed for him. My heart went out to him. I don't know how many people feel like he did. I never get rest. I think mothers often feel that way. And people whose lives are under constant financial pressure, they might feel that way. Whatever obligations people have can make them feel that those obligations are so unremitting that they can never rest. You know, sometimes our obligations are so pervasive that even our sleep is filled with thoughts about things that need to be done and the time constraints to do them, as well as the pressure that's mounting. Even the daily rest at night begins to disappear. Look, it's good to work, to be productive, to have a goal in life. But what if that goal is never realized? And what if the hard work never moves you forward? What if the sacrifices that you've made never pay off? What if the rest you seek never actually materializes? And what if the retirement you dream of never happens for you and the work never ends? All of these are questions that not just a few, but I think everybody asks. When we finished off our study in Hebrews chapter 3, we read a quotation from Psalm 95. It spoke of the hard hearts of the people who followed Moses out of Egypt. Instead of thankful, believing hearts, they complained, they put God to the test, they rebelled against Moses. At the climax of all of that, in Numbers 13 and 14, they came to the place where they could have entered the promised land, but they didn't. They became convinced that the inhabitants of the land were too strong for them. And so given not just lapses into unbelief and rampant disobedience, God saw it was a permanent condition with them. And so Hebrews, quoting Psalm 95, says that God swore in his anger that they, that is, the generation that followed Moses out of Israel, would not enter into his rest. Now that word rest seems to be a synonym for the promised land. And there's a reason to think of the promised land as a land of resting. I mean, once Israel took the promised land, they would rest from their wilderness wanderings. If you get the time, you owe it to yourself to slowly read through Numbers chapter 33 and just imagine it. In 40 years, they moved 40 times. Imagine moving 40 times in 40 years. You might be looking for rest as well. Rest means a place to call your own. It's a permanent home. But of course, the promised land is rest in other ways as well. You know, in David's time, David said that God had given him rest from all his enemies. The borders were then secure. The nation was strong enough that that no one was attacking them. People had the time to grow their farms and businesses, to take care of their families, and to take the time to rejoice and live off the fruit of their labor without people stealing their crops and their land. And I say that because in many countries on this earth, 
governments are unable to repress violent warlords who run their countries. I recently read a report about one country. The drug lords were crowding avocado farmers off their land, simply taking over. One farmer said, to whom shall I go for help? Now, there was no one. See, the promised land was the kind of land which Micah the prophet promised would occur in the last days. Then the Messiah would come, said Micah. And then Micah chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And so because of unbelief, the people who followed Moses out of Egypt, they were unable to enter that which they so desperately wanted. They were unable to enter the rest God had promised them. So we come now to Hebrews chapter 4, which takes the theme of rest and applies it to these Jewish Christians who are thinking of abandoning their faith because of the fear of persecution. So playing on the concept of rest, let's read our text today. It's Hebrews 4, 1 to 5. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, it says, they shall not enter my rest. So verse one begins with the word, therefore. Since we have something to learn from the failure of the generation that followed Moses out of Egypt, and we're not able to enter the rest, therefore, and then a surprising passage, while the promise of entering the rest still stands. And here we need to stop and notice that the word rest, what it signifies, has just changed. It meant the promised land and the rest from wilderness wanderings and rest from slavery and rest from enemies. But now we switch from language devoted to ancient Israel to a word rest devoted to believers today. And so what is the rest that is promised to those of us who put our hope in Christ? Well, it can't mean rest from our enemies or can it? I mean, after all, these people who received this letter of Hebrews, as we've noted, they were afraid of the approach of persecution. And so what rest was being promised to them? Well, we might say, well, perhaps the land of Canaan is being compared to heaven. Yeah. Even as Israel left slavery in Egypt and was on the way to the promised land, haven't believers in Jesus left the slavery of sin? And are we not journeying toward the celestial city, the new Jerusalem, the eternal city of our God? See, that's what's promised us near the end of the book of Hebrews. I'm reading Hebrews 12, 22 to 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So from one perspective, what else can the promised rest refer to other than the journey we're now taking from the captivity of Satan's dark kingdom of slavery to sin to the eternal kingdom 
when wars and disease and sin and hatred and death will be no more. Finally, rest. And isn't that the promise we've received? Indeed it is. Jesus has promised us eternal life. And if we take chapter 4, verse 1 to mean that rest is a metaphor of heaven, well, then the verse makes good sense. Look at it again. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You see, just like the Israelites who followed Moses out of Egypt, but who never made it to Canaan to the promised land, so also these Hebrew Christians, wandering from slavery to sin, to the eternal country that Christ has promised them, well, they might be compared to ancient Israel. See, instead of keeping their eyes on that which was promised, they could end up just like those people in the past with their bodies laid to rest in the desert rather than going to the promised rest. Now, before I answer if that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews had in mind, let's just take the time and acknowledge this possibility. The wilderness between slavery unto the promised land, it's filled with hardships. It's filled with difficulties and things that might cause us to stumble. And notice how applicable the words of Hebrews 4 actually are to us. Notice the words, let us fear. These are important words. I know that some of us will remember that, you know, in 1 John, it tells us that perfect love drives out all fear. But the fear that John speaks about is the fear that we're not forgiven, and that we might not trust in Christ. But here in Hebrews 4 verse 1, the words, let us fear, well, that means we fear the sin that would disqualify us from the promised rest. Let me put it plainly. Every single born-again Christian should fear sin. You see, if I tell you that you should fear a, a bare, exposed power line lying somewhere, I, I would mean to say, stay away, don't touch it, because if you do, death will be instant. You should fear going close to it. In the same way, let us fear, and here, it is not sin per se, but it is this. Let us fear lest any of you, any of us, should fail to reach the promised land. Notice these are the words of a loving pastor. He's filled with concern lest one person in his congregation should fall from grace. One commentator has said, to be concerned for one's own salvation, that's commendable. To be concerned with someone else's is praiseworthy, but to fear for everyone's salvation, that's exemplary, that's excellent. See, Christians are told, let's be watchful of each other. We don't want any one of us to lose the salvation that's promised. If you're considering a vacation in 2024, we'd love to invite you to join Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and the leadership team behind them on a Caribbean cruise event from April 5th to the 14th, 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. This vacation opportunity will provide beautiful scenery. Time being refreshed and challenged by the Bible teaching of Dr. John, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and times of worship and song with feature musical guest, Amanda Stott. For more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by those who participate.
Good Christian leaders are on the lookout for spiritual stragglers and people who lack the zeal to keep up and who easily fall away. They fear such a possibility. I mean, what if one person, just one, doesn't enter that rest? See, that's the mark of a godly pastor, godly elder, godly leader. Let's go to verse 2 because it tells us why we should genuinely be afraid of people falling away from the faith. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the word here for good news can also be translated as the gospel. Indeed, that's the literal translation. And that might lead the astute Bible reader to wonder, how was the gospel preached in the Old Testament to the generation of people that came out of slavery, but in some sense it was. Of course, they didn't know about Jesus and what he would one day do as he would die on the cross for their sins, but they did know about the mercy of God. You know, after the community sinned by making a golden calf, and then they were in danger of being destroyed, they heard something of the nature of God. It's found in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's a weighty verse. Or think of Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 18. Moses says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. Then on to verse 17. But if your heart turns away, now to verse 18, you shall surely perish. Love God, surrender to him, live. Deny God, reject his compassion, turn from his ways, death. That's the gospel that was preached to them. And then says the writer of Hebrews, that gospel, that good news, that showed them the way of life and rest, that word did not benefit them. There were no positive results that came. And why was that? See, the answer, look carefully at your text. We would have expected it to say that they didn't believe, that they didn't combine hearing with faith. But our translation, which I think follows the Greek very closely here, says something different. It says that the message didn't benefit them because, watch this carefully, they were not united by faith with those who listened. See, that seems to indicate there are two groups of people here. There were those who listened in faith, but those who did not have faith, says the text, were not united with those who did listen in faith. In other words, from one perspective, they were all part of one people. That is, they all came out of Egyptian slavery together, but that people were not united. Those who believed and those who did not were actually two different groups. Now, historically, it was only Caleb and Joshua who believed, that is, when the spies came back. But but the writer of Hebrews says Joshua and Caleb had nothing in common with the other 10 spies. They weren't united with them. They were never one people with them. It's no different today. People who are a part of the same Christian community. I mean, maybe they sit next to each other in worship. Perhaps they, they go to a Bible study together. Perhaps their names appear next to one another on the membership roster. But the ones without faith are not united with the ones who believe. Indeed, their involvement in the Christian community 
and they're being under the teaching of the word, they might have done it for years. It was no benefit to them at all. That's a sobering thought. Look at verse 3. For we who have believed enter the rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. You know, the first thing I want you to notice in this verse is the present tense, not the future tense. Notice the passage doesn't say, for we who have believed shall enter the rest. Rather, it says, for we who have believed enter that rest. Present tense right now. And why do I point this out? I do because you're going to remember that when I spoke of the rest that believers have, I said that we might take the rest to mean that it refers to heaven, the promised land, the new Jerusalem, the eternal city of God, our new home in heaven. But even if that's what's meant in verse 1, it's clearly not meant here in verse 3. In verse 3, the rest that we're promised, it happens right now when we believe. So we might be confused. What then is the rest we enter? Now, some of us might want a practical answer to that question. And you might be a believer and say, you know, I do believe when I hear the gospel. You know, I trust in the word that's given, but my life doesn't feel like rest. I'm still hounded by my enemies. I wrestle with the temptations of the world, the flesh, the devil. And I worry about the threats to my own very weak faith. I also struggle with sin. I I feel I've not entered a rest at all. And in many ways, that might make sense. But look at her text again. And as you do, remember, this is the word of God. It says, for we who believe enter that rest. And notice in later part of that verse, there's a repetition that those who did not believe didn't enter. But then it says, look, the unbelievers didn't enter the rest, although it was right there. It was available to them right now if only they had believed. Do you see how verse 3 says it? You have entered the rest, the rest when God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. So stop there. And before we define the word rest, notice this. All believers in Christ, those who have faith in the gospel and in the promises made in the cross, now enter some kind of a rest at the point of believing. And that rest is the same kind of rest that our creator enjoyed when he completed the work of creation. So whatever's meant by rest, it must not mean, you know, collapsing into your favorite chair after a hard day of work. Rest doesn't mean inactivity, or as we sometimes say, you know, crashing after a hard day of work. God created the world with ease. And so after he created, he didn't need time to recover from his exhaustion in creating. That's not what rest means here. Rather, the word rest means completion. After God spoke, he concluded with the words, it is good, and finally, it is very good. There was nothing subpar about God's creation. God didn't have to monkey with the creation later as if something was incomplete. And so, God invites you into a work that's perfect and complete. Put practically, your salvation is complete. Your sins are forgiven. Your eternity is secure. The judgment is settled at the cross. Rest, everything is complete. And then if you still don't get it, look at verses four and five. For he has somewhere spoken of a seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. The reference here comes from Genesis chapter two. And at this point, after the six days of creation, we are not introduced to a second round of creation. Following the six days, there is nothing but rest. I love what Richard Phillips says. When we say that God rested, 
We do not mean he went on vacation. The picture is rather that after having made and ordered and subdued the creation according to his desired plan, his control was so absolute, his sovereignty so unquestioned, that God enthroned himself without effective opposition. You know, Phillips means, and the Bible says, that God rules from the position of resting. That is, he created and he ruled completely. His rule is uncontested. So how does that apply to the believer's rest? Look at it this way. When you believe in Christ, you enter into God's rule in which he has promised you that nothing can pluck you out of God's hand. Not life, not death, not angels, not demons, not dread of persecution or famine or the sword. You enter into God's uncontested rule in your life, and so you rest. See, I began by saying that the world is filled with tired people who desperately need a rest. I spoke of the man who hadn't had a day off for years. I talked of anxiety and stress. I talked of that nagging feeling that all our work might not get us what we hoped for. There's always a sense in which we feel that we're falling short of grasping the ultimate rest. Now, it's sure that for believers, the ultimate rest still awaits us in the heavenly Jerusalem. But there's something we inherit here. It's a rest that declares that the other things that we fear are already taken care of. We don't have to worry that we may not get what we hope for. What we believers hope for is the gospel, and those gospel promises are secured for us by the precious blood of our Savior. Our future is secure, and in that sense, our rest is already here. And all the persecution of this world cannot Take that from us. Thanks, John. John, how would you say we overcome worry? Or is worry a sign of not being right with God? Yeah, I mean, worry is always in relationship to the future. I mean, you know, whatever you worry about, it's about something that has not yet occurred, but you see the potential of it occurring. And so because it, uh, you know, is a threat in some fashion, you begin to worry I mean, sometimes, you know, worry can lead you to mitigate some of those things, but, you know, this, this is always future-related. Now, I'm going to say this, that when we cast our hope fully on Christ, um, it changes the very nature of the way in which we approach the future. If the future is entirely held by God, that he uses all things for his glory, and that his people should not be concerned, then we enter into rest. That's the antidote to worry. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Last month, Back to the Bible Canada wrapped up another fiscal year. Every year, our gratitude and appreciation are renewed by the generosity you shower upon us. Your financial gifts of any amount, your prayers, your support, they do so much to sustain and grow this Bible teaching ministry. The ministry is now diving in head first to another year of faithful, expositional Bible teaching by Dr. John Newfeld and so many other ministry opportunities that God has placed before us. We can't wait to see what God unfolds. May I express our deep gratitude for all you do. If you'd like more information about Back to the Bible Canada or its associated ministries, 
give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.